Mike Ward speaking. Yes, Mike. It's Larry Olmsted. Larry Olmsted, how are you today? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. I'm super excited to be speaking to you today. I am a huge fan of your book and what you do. And you're in Japan right now. Is that right? Uh, I am. I've been here for about two weeks. It's my last day, but it's uh, it's been very refreshing because, uh, you know, the topics I discuss in my book about real food and fake food, um, this is probably the best country in the world to uh, eat reliable real food. So it's been pretty good. Well, okay, so that that's the perfect segue. For, for folks that don't know who you are or what you do, Larry Olmsted, you are an award-winning journalist, author of a New York Times bestseller called Real Food, Fake Food, What You Don't Know, What You're Eating, and What You Can Do About It. I read the, your book a couple of months ago, and I didn't sleep for two days, and I also <laughs> didn't eat for two days. But, but there's two reasons why I love what you do and what this book is about. There is so much food media out there that is frightening and scary and makes me hate going into a supermarket. But what you also do in this book is you tell us how to navigate so much of this stuff that's on the shelves that is not what it says it's supposed to be. Yeah, that's true. And, and um, you know, I, I try to come at it from the optimistic uh, glass half full perspective, um, you know, that there's real food and it's delicious and it's good for you. And, you know, and you should be seek. It's worth seeking out. You should make the effort, but you do have to make an effort because there's a lot of pitfalls along the way. Okay, well, let's get into that. Why don't you hit me over the head first with all the nasty facts and figures, and then afterwards you will tell me that there is hope at the end of the tunnel. So, so what does it look like? What does it look like out there in in terms of a modern North American supermarket? What are some of the greatest scams or misnomers that we're being told about that, frankly, isn't true? Imagine if Anthony Bourdain and Martha Stewart had a love child. And that little boy grew up to be a chef, writer, and cookbook author with an incredible passion for talking about all things food-related. And he had a radio show where he'd chat with smart, funny food personalities and celebrity chefs. And they'd talk about the most provocative topics and recipes, ingredients, and tips. Legally, we can't confirm that boy is Mike Ward, but you're listening to Devour with Chef Mike Ward on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks. Hello, folks. Welcome to Devour. I am Mike Ward. I am sitting in a little apartment right now looking at Sydney Harbour. Yes, I am. Now, this is radio, so it doesn't really matter to you guys, but it kind of does matter because the theme of today's show is really inspired by this. Growing up in Sydney, and I actually brought my two daughters down here to hang out with my mom, who still lives down here in Sydney, uh, and I live in Toronto, Canada, as many of you may know. I learned to cook in this country, and it is here where my passion for food was born. We are immensely spoiled as Australians in terms of produce and seafood and meat and everything, because it is it is obviously where we where the country resides in the world. I mean, we have a terrific climate, terrific farming, terrific terrific agriculture, uh, and we, as a matter of fact, we export most of our highest quality uh, food items to the world's highest bidders. Many countries are not uh, as lucky as Australia is, and this brings me to today's topic. I'm chatting with a chap by the name of Larry Olmsted, who wrote this phenomenal book, and is in all things in life when uh, you know market demand outreaches or or overprices uh, certain desirable items. What happens? Well, forgeries and fakes are created. We're certainly aware of it in the knockoff watch market, handbags, this type of thing. 
But when I read this book, it blew my mind as to how prevalent it is in the food world. Uh, many of them are dangerous for you health-wise, but many of them are just downright annoying in terms of the economic cost and the fact that you're getting downright ripped off, which is dull and boring. But the lovely thing about this book is that he offers solutions on how to navigate this problem. So it's not like so many food documentaries where we tune in and go, oh my goodness, yes, I thank you for the education, but it ultimately depressed me. So let's get back to my enlightening chat with all author Larry Olmsted. Devour with Chef Mike Ward. Well, the Grocery Manufacturers Association of America estimates that 10% of the food in our country is, is somehow adulterated, uh, which you know means either misleadingly labeled, physically adulterated, like cut with something you know other than it is, or just a fake. Right. And that's a lot. I mean, that's one out of 10 items. It means, you know, I like to say, if you're not leaving uh, the supermarket in that express lane with the eight items or less in your cart, you've probably picked up something wrong. Um, so it, it's a big problem. I mean, I think it's, it's a $50 billion global problem. But, uh, but, you know, in the U.S., or North America um, specifically, probably, you know, the worst category is seafood. And, and that's a good example to start with because um, the, the rule of thumb sort of across the, the fake food spectrum is if there's some product that's relatively expensive and you cannot easily identify it by looking at it, you're probably going to get ripped off. That, mm. That's just an invitation to fraud. And you know, the former commissioner of the FDA told me that straight up. Anytime you can substitute a cheaper product for an inexpensive of one and you can't easily tell by looking at it there's going to be fraud and seafood is is the example because you know we don't eat uh in in our sort of modern society we don't buy or cook a lot of whole fish um most consumers go to the supermarket and they buy a filet Mm -hmm. and once you filet almost any white fish which is most fish Mm -hmm. um they kind of all look the same Uh, i did a uh, an episode of uh, the Dr. Oz show where we put, you know, fillets of tilapia and fillets of red snapper next to each other, and nobody could tell them apart, yeah. except that red snapper costs 10 times as much as tilapia. And that is, in numerous studies, that the single worst fish uh, across the United States, restaurants and supermarkets, somewhere around 93% of the time, you order red snapper, you do not get red snapper. You get a uh, different fish. Is going out to dinner with you fun, or is it depressing? <laughs> Uh, it's depressing, um, especially for my <laughs> wife. But you know, normally, I try to sort of, you know, my friends know what I do, so I know, normally we just don't talk about it. You know, they'll sometimes ask, "Hey, you know, should I order this red snapper?" And I'll shake my head, "No." Um, but I don't, you know, sit there and, and and judge. There's all parts of the world, and this certainly is in New York and Toronto, where I can go to dodgy parts of town. I can buy myself a, a fake Italian name brand wallet or a woman's purse for one tenth of the price, and it's not legit. But it's not <laughs> doing me any physical harm to walk around in a pair of fake Gucci shoes. What is in these illegal or fake foods that I need to be worried about other than the fact that they're false advertising? Yeah, I mean, there's a, in, in some cases, you won't physically be hurt. It's like you say with the Gucci uh, wallet or whatever, that um, you're just simply being being ripped off economically. The difference here is that when you go and you buy that fake Gucci wallet or Rolex, you know it's fake and you're not paying the full you're not paying $5,000 for a fake Rolex, you're paying right. $50. Right. But here you're paying the $5,000 and you're getting the $50 version. Uh, so so there's a big economic fraud, but then, you know, that you could have presumably, you know, you're trying to feed your family, you could have bought you know, many other things with that money. But then mm-hmm. there is um, mm-hmm. a physical concern in a lot of this stuff because the product that you're getting is usually inferior and nutritionally, and then sometimes it's actually dangerous. And going back to the red snapper example, mm-hmm. a, a common mm-hmm. substitute um, for red snapper is tile fish. And tile fish is on the uh, 
FDA, the Federal uh, Food and Drug Administration's list of fish you should not eat if you're pregnant or a child or have a weakened immune system because it's so high in mercury. Oh my uh, another, common, another common substitute is tilapia. Almost all tilapia that we get in the United States is farmed. Most of it is farmed in Southeast mm -hmm. Asia. Mm -hmm. uh, we don't really know how it's farmed. We often don't even know what country it's coming from, but in numerous investigations have shown you know, farmed fish from Southeast Asia to be loaded with antibiotics and pesticides that are banned in the United States because they're known carcinogens or other problems. Red snapper is always a wild-caught fish. So when you think you're eating red snapper, you think you're getting some fish from the ocean that wasn't drugged up, but you, in reality you're not. So there's legitimate health concerns. You're listening to Devour on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks. And to cure your cravings, get online at chefmikeward.com for hundreds of tasty, simple recipes and a whole lot more. Let's take a step back even further. I am in Australia right now with my two girls. This is where I grew up, and you're in Japan right now. These are two countries that have a very different relationship with food than perhaps we do in North America, and certainly different to Europe. How do you turn back the cultural clock and try to re-educate North Americans to have a different relationship with food, perhaps more like the French do. You know, the classic cliche of, well, French eat butter and they drink a lot of wine and it's all this very rich food, but yet there's nowhere near the diabetes rate. There's nowhere near the obesity rate that they have in France that they do in North America. How do we change it culturally? I think we are beginning to, and part of it is sort of the... Uh you know, the sort of hipster and farm-to-table movement and local war movement. And I, um, you know, I'm not personally driven that much by locality because I'd rather eat uh, Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese that was brought to me from from <laughs> Italy than uh, a fake version made down the street from me. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but, but, the, but the thing is, you know, we, in, it, we mentioned the French, right? And the traditional thing about French cooking, uh, whether it's home or restaurant, is it's market-driven, right? The chef or the person goes to the market, they see what's good, they buy it, they plan their menu around that versus saying, I really want to make... Um, you know, tomato and a mozzarella salad. So I'm going to do yeah. it, even though it's the middle of winter and the tomatoes suck. Right. So um, that's the problem in our country is that we've become used to having yeah. access to everything we want all the time relatively cheaply. Uh, shrimp is a great example. You know, when I was growing up, shrimp was like lobster. Mm. It was a sort of a luxury food, and you'd go out on your, you know, for your birthday to a steakhouse and have a shrimp cocktail, and it was mm -hmm. like a treat. But now, you know, we have this yeah. notion that you should be able to eat all-you-can-eat shrimp for nine ninety nine at Red Lobster, and um, that just doesn't make sense. Because the, the, and the way that we can do that is by farming vast amounts of low-quality shrimp in Thailand. So, um, so I think, you know, as Americans start, never had the sense of uh, sort of terroir that the Europeans do and the yeah. AOC system and all, all that, but we're starting to, um, pro you know, and you see it with, with like meats. You go to a nice restaurant in New York and they'll say, you know, we have this heritage breed pork that's raised in the Hudson Valley. And, I, and that's the kind of thing, I don't want to sound snobby about it, but knowing where your food comes from and how it was raised is, is really the important part. Let's talk about the luxury items, things that perhaps are, are not as detrimental to our health, but where you suggest the idea that we're being scammed from a brand standpoint, some food items that require a certification based on where they're born, not unlike champagne. You've got Kobe beef, mm -hmm. you've got Parmigiano-Reggiano balsamic vinegar. I was blown away in the book how you talked about the, the enormously high incidence of, of, of crap and fillers, for instance, that's in, in Parmigiano-Reggiano. 
Well, actually, so if it says Parmigiano-Reggiano, it's the real thing because that na- the full Italian name was trademarked and is protected. Um, but the English translation of Parmigiano-Reggiano, which is Parmesan, um, they, the uh, producers in Italy were not able to get protection for. So you can call anything in the United States Parmesan, and to argue, as uh, some of the cheese pro- domestic cheese producers will, that it's a different word is ridiculous because that's like saying the Italian word for Rome, Roma, doesn't mean Rome, or the Italian word for Italy, Italia, doesn't mean mean Italy. I mean, uh, the word Parmesan has been the English translation of Parmigiano Reggiano since before the United States existed. Um, and that's what it means. But when you go and you buy a piece of cheese that says Parmesan, right. you're, you have no idea what you're getting. Um, it could be a well-made craft cheese from a small American producer. It could be from Argentina. It could be from uh, made in a factory tank in Wisconsin. And it can have all kinds of things in it which are not allowed in Parmigiano-Reggiano, which only by law has, for 800 years has three ingredients, which are you know drug-free, pesticide-free milk, the purest, freshest milk you can get, salt, and rennet. And those are the only ingredients. Um, it's very nutritionally yeah. dense, and it's very delicious. A website Serious Eats in New York did a taste test where they bought every domestically made version of Parmesan they could and compared it to the real thing. And not only did the real thing come out on top, but they basically found all the other cheese unacceptable, um, which, uh, you know, I agree with. Uh, you know, and from a taste perspective, um, not just an ingredients perspective. <laughs> so, um, but you're right, a, a lot, at least that the... Uh, the the folks who make Parmigiano Reggiano were able to protect that name, so you can buy the real thing in Italy. But you mentioned, I mean, from Italy in the United States, fairly readily. Once you know what to look for, it's actually easy to buy. Uh, unlike you know, Kobe beef, which you mentioned, I'm, I'm here in Japan right now. I had Kobe beef in Tokyo twice last week. Um, it's easier to get here. It's still not easy to get. Um, I haven't seen it on the menus the way you do in the U.S., where there's Kobe burgers and sliders and things everywhere. You have to go to a specialty restaurant. In the United States, there's 10 restaurants in the entire country that serve real Kobe beef. There's hundreds of restaurants in the United States that have Kobe beef on their menu. So the vast majority of them are just lying. Um, and because it's not trademark protected, it's not really illegal. Um, there is a gray area. There have been some class action suits against larger steakhouse chains uh, for defrauding consumers. But an individual restaurant does it. There's basically no chance mm-hmm. they're going to get in trouble. And many of them do. And you even, you know, you use champagne. It's the most recognizable uh, food of this type to people to understand the issue that, you know, you ask an American, you know, what's champagne? They'll say, oh, it's a sparkling wine that can only come from France. And, and that should be true, but it's not. In the U.S., it's legal to make uh, sparkling wine domestically and label it champagne. And very few consumers realize it. They say, oh, no, no, you know, from, you know it says like, uh, you know, Moet Sparkling uh, Brute from California. And it does because Moet is a responsible producer owned by a French house. I was surprised here, Larry, to read that many of us, including the U.S. government themselves, considers themselves to be the world's police. But yet they are one of the few countries that has not signed this international agreement to protect these international suppliers uh, of their own trademarks. Is that correct? Uh, that is. Um, we, you know, the, it was a ri- the champagne was the first uh, food trademark internationally protected um, the Treaty of Madrid, 200 years ago or a little bit less, uh, we agreed to sign it and then did not. And then later after World War One, mm-hmm. um, we mm. did sign a treaty, but Congress failed to ratify it. And to this day, um, Champagne, along with a lot of other um, regional wine names like Burgundy, Chianti, mm-hmm. Port, Sherry, um, 
are not protected in the U.S. and anyone can make them. And, you know, these are all mm-hmm. places. You know, port comes from Oporto, Portugal. That's why it's mm-hmm. called port. Sherry comes from Jerez, Spain, which is why it's called Sherry. Mm-hmm. Burgundy obviously comes from Burgundy. So, um, you know, when the American consumer goes and buys, even in our country, a bottle of French Burgundy, you know exactly what you're getting because it's made under very strict legal rules. It's going to be 100% Pinot Noir from a certain quality of grape. Mm-hmm. No added, did you go and buy a bottle of red Burgundy from California, it might not have any Pinot Noir in it. You have no idea what it is. There's no rules governing its production. So um, I think that's insane, <laughs> but, um, but I do understand to a degree, you know, we have, we have a different system of trademark law in the United States, and it's it's designed for innovation and profit, basically. So companies can trademark things, individuals can trademark things, but associations of producers and regions cannot own trademarks the way they do. You know, the Parmigiano Reggiano is, is owned by a consortium of dairies in the Parma Reggio mm-hmm. region. It's not owned by uh, a, ch- a cheese company. So we just don't really have that. Is there anything that's flipped in reverse? For instance, is there any uh, food manufacturing in the U.S. that has a trademark there that is copied and ripped off any other place in the world? Oh, a- absolutely. Um, the the best example, again, it's it's another boozy example, is a uh, Napa Valley wine. Uh, Napa Valley is is the most valuable appellation in the world, even more so than Bordeaux, because you know you typically you you don't you don't buy Bordeaux based on it saying Bordeaux on it, you buy it based on the mm-hmm. producer. But all over the world, people understand the value of Napa Valley. They estimate that it adds um, about $2 a bottle to the value of wine in America. And the average really? price of wine in America is like $6. So that's really substantial. But um, the Napa Valley winemakers have only been able to sign treaties protecting the Napa Valley name in 12 countries around the world. Is that an international response to the U.S. by saying, you know what, you won't do the right thing by us, so here you go? I think in in, in part it is, but I think it's also just, um, you know, we, we by, by failing to participate in these international, these broad international agreements, you know, like Champagne, there's only six countries in the world that chose not to sign that, including the U.S., that leaves the producers like Napa and Kona Coffee and Vidalia Onions and, you know, our products having to, having to negotiate these treaties with individual countries as a one-off rather than at a global level. Big story blew up months ago about wood chips found in most of Parmesan cheese. That's scary. Is it true? You're listening to Devour on Sirius XM, Channel 167, Canada Talks. And to cure your cravings, get online at chefmikeward.com for hundreds of tasty, simple recipes and a whole lot more. Well, it's cellulose, which is wood fiber, so it was probably... um, unresponsible of the media to characterize it as sawdust or wood chips, though it essentially, mm-hmm. you know, chemically is, is sawdust, but it's a naturally occurring plant fiber. They don't grind up wood and add it. But then again, it's not supposed to be in cheese. And the reason why, and, and this is only what a lot of people don't understand, this only applies to the pre-graded cheese, like the tubes, shakers of not, right. if, you, if you bought a wedge of Parmesan, even if it was crappy Parmesan, it wouldn't, it wouldn't have the cellulose. The cellulose is added to prevent the grated cheese from caking um, or, you know, clumping on the I shelf. See. And, but, um, and the, again, the FDA, in a lot of these cases, the FDA has a recommendation, which basically means it's, it's not a rule, it's a recommendation and it's not legally binding. And their recommendation for this is that the manufacturer not use more cellulose than is needed to accomplish that, pur- that purpose of the cheese not clumping. And people in the mm-hmm. cheese industry say that that's like around 
half to 1% of the product being cellulose will do the job. But cellulose is cheaper than even the, the bad grated cheese. So when they tested it, they found up to 20% of the product being cell- added cellulose, which is pretty disgusting. My Lord. Wow. And this is uh, this is common in, in most U.S. supermarkets with grated Parmesan. Uh, yeah. I mean, they tested... Um, all, you know, pretty much all the major brands. And I think they were all, you know, they weren't all 20%, some were four five, 6%, but you're still talking, you know, 10 times as much as you need. Um, and, um, I, you know, that, but this is an easy one for consumer, you know, I, I, consumers, I give tips at the end of each chapter for buying. And one of them is just don't ever buy grated cheese. If you, you know, when you think about it, what, you know, you're a chef, what do you use that, you know, grated uh, Parmesan cheese for. You put it on maybe on pasta or pizza or you use it as an ingredient in a dish, usually in a fairly small amount, like half a cup or something. So take a wedge of yeah. cheese and a grater and it'll take you 10 seconds to get accomplish the same thing and it'll taste better. Uh, salmon is such a, it seems to be so full of conjecture and myth. How do we navigate that? Right, well, the, the good thing about salmon is it's one of the few fish that you can readily recognize by eye, even once it's cut into fillets or steaks. So when you see salmon, you're probably going to get salmon because it's distinctive looking. It's orange. The problem comes when you want to buy wild caught salmon, which a lot um, I mean, they've done studies. Consumers clearly prefer, even though it's more expensive. Um, mm-hmm. And um, numerous studies have shown that uh, Farm salmon is, is often sold as wild-caught salmon at the higher prices, even to the point of a supermarket having them side-by-side, side, one saying, you know, wild-caught salmon, $23 a pound, farmed Atlantic salmon, $18 a pound, but they're both farmed Atlantic salmon. By wild-caught to me, I, I assume you're meaning a human being has thrown a line into a body of water and they've pulled out a fish. Yes, but the, the, it's not really so much how it's caught. Salmon in the wild do not eat antibiotics. They do not eat food colorants to turn them orange. Um, they are, they, they, you know, salmon is not naturally orange. It becomes orange from its diet, which is microscopic krill. In the farm, uh, they, they don't eat microscopic krill. They turn orange from um, uh, chemicals that are added to their, their food pellets to turn them orange. Mm-hmm. Now, there is, you know, not all aquaculture is bad. And it's um, just like, you know, it's another, it's another system of farming. And it can be done very well. It can be done cleanly. It can be done responsibly. Farming, uh, salmon farming is particularly expensive to do well because the hardest fish to farm are carnivorous fish and saltwater fish. And uh, salmon is both of those. Um, mm. And most salmon farming is not done well. Um, so I have visited you know, a salmon farm that I would gladly eat salmon from. But the majority of the commercially available farmed salmon I don't want to eat. And that's most of the salmon in the, in the supermarket. Um, and so that's the advantage of wild-caught salmon is that it, you know, was basically raised by nature. But what most people don't realize is that in the United States, basically all of our wild-caught salmon comes from Alaska. So wild-caught and Alaskan are synonymous. Um, and the good thing about Alaska is that they, as a state, ban aquaculture. So all Alaskan salmon is wild-caught. Wow. Uh, and basically all of all of our wild-caught salmon is, is Alaskan. I mean, you can get, like here in Japan, wild-caught salmon from Hokkaido. It's Pacific salmon. But what the average consumer does not know is that there is no such thing as wild-caught Atlantic salmon. Uh, Atlantic salmon as a species is commercially extinct. There's still some swimming around, and if you're a fisherman, you might catch one. Um, mm-hmm. But it is not commercially caught. So when you see salmon you know, from Norway, from Scotland, 
um, from Iceland, from uh, Nova Scotia, from Maine. Mm-hmm. It is all farmed. And people don't understand that. You go to a fancy restaurant and they say, you know, Scottish salmon, that sounds fancy. You know, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that, that means farmed. Uh, Norwegian salmon means farmed. And again, some, Nor- Norway has some of the better salmon farms, but it also has uh, not better salmon farms. So um, you'll, see, you'll see fresh Atlantic salmon in the supermarket. And it doesn't say farmed. It doesn't have to say farmed. It says fresh. And people assume that means it was caught and it was not. One area where people get confused often is there's an assumption that if something is uh, organic, it is not farmed as well. It depends on how you define farm. See, you know, for fish, it's different because you go out and you catch a fish or you farm it, but you don't go out and catch a lettuce. I mean, all of our lettuce is is essentially farmed. Um, it comes from farms, um, and you know it can be raised organically. And I actually think the the USDA does a pretty good job with the organic standard. And and there's some products mm-hmm. it's more important to buy organically. You know, if you don't have access to a local farm to buy, you know, grass fed, drug free meat. If you buy organic meat, beef, at least you know that that means that it was not raised with antibiotics or steroids, which is a good thing. Right. Um, I don't care as much for about things like lettuce. You know, whether you spend more money or not, but what consumers need to know is what we have organic standards for meat and poultry and fruit and vegetables. We do not have organic standards for seafood. The USDA chose not to include seafood. And so with seafood, it's just like it was with everything else 20 years ago before we had an organic standard, which, and like it is with natural, where because it's not regulated, it can be used. So you'll see organic seafood for sale but it doesn't mean anything. There is no such thing as an organic standard for seafood. Is there some type of easy way that we could navigate salmon in a supermarket? Is there specific countries that you want to avoid? Um, well, I want to eat personally wild-caught Alaskan salmon. And having a little sign on the fish that says wild-caught Alaskan salmon is not enough um, because it's been shown about a third of time the time in this country that that's a lie. So um, my goodness, you want either um, a salmon that comes in a package that has the state of Alaska seal. Uh, Alaska has a seal that says, like, Alaska seafood, pure, natural, wild. They take it very seriously. It's the only state in the United States with um, uh, environmental sustainability built into their state constitution. Uh, Like I said, Mm. no aquaculture allowed. They spend a lot of money. They hired an ISO 9000 company to oversee uh, the sale of Alaskan seafood. They'll sue you very happily if you violate that. So I, I, it's a well-protected seal. I look for that. Um, so so that's how I would shop for salmon. I've seen these hideous videos on Facebook and whatnot recently about certain parts of Asia where they're injecting shrimp with what seems like some you know <laughs> silicon product to give them <laughs> to give them more weight and volume. What's all that about? Um, well, I did look into that uh, pretty thoroughly because it, it's really it is disgusting if you watch those videos. But it's it's a little more of an internet sensation than a, a legitimate concern for consumers. Um, that that has been okay. done in some Chinese markets where you know people buy the shrimp based on like the sort of firmness and size it's never been found in like the exported mass-produced shrimp uh there's lots of other things in chinese uh, mass-produced shrimp you don't want to eat but the silicon injection is not it's not the concern real food fake food is the name of your book larry thank you so much for doing what you do i consider your book to be required reading thank you so much for your time today all right well hey have fun in australia eat well okay we'll chat soon thank you bye-bye Guys, that was Larry Olmsted from Japan. Remember, ChefMikeWard.com for a whole bunch of recipes and all my social links there. In loving your feedback, and I'll see you next week. <laughs>